You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula still has all your Star Wars miniatures, all your comic books, and all your Magic the Gathering tournaments every day of the week. But now, they're making it easier for wheelchair users to come into their store because they're building an accessible washroom. This one hits home for me, you guys. I'm a person who uses a mobility scooter, and it's just easier for me to use the washroom when it's accessible. And there's a lot of comic shops, even in downtown Toronto, that don't have accessible washrooms. So I'm very proud to announce that uh, Harry Tarantula is doing what they need to do to move the needle forward and make their place more accessible for everyone. They're also building a cafe. Uh, this has been a really uh, successful thing around Toronto, marrying uh, coffee with comics, and uh, Harry Tarantula is following suit. So come on down to 3456 Young Street, show them your support, and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fan people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can also subscribe at uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. Don't forget to follow us on social media at SpeechBubblePod on everything, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, Don't forget to review our show on Apple Podcast. Uh, If you review, send me a direct message on social media, either through Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, and I will send you a comic from my personal collection. You just have to get in touch with me, and that will happen for you. So today, uh, I'm recording this as part of our slate of guests that went to the Toronto Comic Art Festival, And today we have Mark Allen Stamity. Mark is a prolific cartoonist and he's a prolific children's book illustrator. Um, You may have seen, uh, I don't know if you watch the YouTube channel uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe with Jim Rugg uh, from Street Angel and Ed Piscor who does X-Men Grand Design and uh, Hip Hop Family Tree, but they have a show on their channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe, called Show and Tell, and they did an episode on picture books, and Mark's book, Who Needs Donuts, was shown on that channel. So you may have seen that if you're a Cartoonist Kayfabe subscriber. Uh, He's also done the picture books, Shake, Rattle, and Turn That Noise Down, and Where's My Hippopotamus? But he comes to TCAF, in support of a collection of his late 70s comic strip for The Village Voice called McDoodle Street. uh, And that was for The Village Voice. In the 80s, he created an acclaimed political comic called Washington, also for The Village Voice, and then published for The Washington Post, that was then picked up by over 40 papers across America. 
In the 90s, he was the political cartoonist for Time Magazine, and in the early 2000s, he created a comic strip called Books, B-O-O-X, for the New York Times Book Review. His cartoons, covers, and illustrations have appeared in virtually every major American magazine, Harper's, GQ, New Republic, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and more. Please welcome Mark Allen Stamity. How are you today, Mark? I'm very good, and how are you? I'm very good. Um, I I guess I was first exposed to you from the cartoonist kayfabe um, you know, video. And then I was like, that's, that looks amazing. It's, it's very, uh, who needs donuts? All the drawings are very concentrated. It reminded me kind of, of a where's Waldo sort of situation where you're putting gags and, and concentrating all the, the drawings into one page. And you really have to look to see everything on the page. So then I was like, Oh, I got I gotta find stuff about this guy, and then Penguin Random House, uh, you know, people that we work with, said, you know, if we're looking to interview guests for TCAF, what about Mark Ellen Stamini? And I I knew who you were, and I said, absolutely, we have to have him on. Um, but before we get into your your work and McDoodle Street, what you're here to promote, uh, I wanted to get a sense of what your early life was like and how uh, you got into cartooning. So. Uh, where did you grow up? So I'll tell you that and just say, I just want to say that um, Who Needs Donuts was published 14 years before Where's Waldo. Yeah, I know. People, people often, uh, anyway, make that comparison. But uh, So um, the, uh, I, w- I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, at the age of three, we moved to the Jersey Shore. My parents were gag cartoonists, uh, single panel gag cartoonists in magazines. So I grew up uh, drawing all the time. Um, when I was in fourth grade, we had a teacher, Mrs. Faber, who had us write stories. And I realized that um, I, I loved writing stories, and my stories were the favorite stories of the kids in my class. So um, so I was always basically writing and drawing. Um, as a child, I, I briefly knew Dennis the Menace because my father had been a gag cartoonist with Hank Ketchum, who created Dennis the Menace, and my, my mother was friends with Alice. Actually, the two, all four of them were friends. And, um, and, bef- and then um, after Dennis happened, uh, we visited them one time. They visited us, we, you know, so I played with Dennis. Um, and uh, I grew up reading gag cartoon books, comic books, etc., Mad Magazine, but uh, I never got the gag cartoon gene. So when I was um, 14, I discovered a book called Sick, Sick, Sick by Jules Pfeiffer. And, um, and that book really impacted me because I realized that um, I, I wanted to write narratives. Um, Pfeiffer was very innovative in how he drew and how he, uh, wrote and, you know, the character would like look at you and start talking or pe- people would just have, you know, dialogues. And, um, and, and I like that whole thing where you just start writing, you start drawing, start, you know, it, it wasn't like you, you, you try to find a gag, um, or, you know, as the, as the, the, the entire thing that you're doing. And, um, as a teenager, as we were growing up and as a teenager, I mean, I, I, I loved uh, Little Lulu and, and Dennis the Menace, and I loved Little Abner and, and uh, all those gag cartoons and et cetera. But um, I, I think uh, I, I, I often say my influences included Jules Pfeiffer, Saul Steinberg, um, 
uh, Ronald Searle, and then and then George Gross when I when I went to art school. And when I was 18, I went to New York to Cooper Union and uh, and got a Bachelor of Fine Arts. And um, I I could I could go on. Do you want this? I continue yeah, or should, yeah. So and and in, and in New York. Um, I was always drawn to the city and um, I was always drawn to the energy and intensity of it. I always liked very detailed um, pictures with a lot of things going on. The city was just so full of energy and, and activity constantly. And it just really, um, uh, I got very absorbed in it. <clears throat> so um, then, then uh, in, in the early years, I was kind of this lost guy a bit and I, and um the, I, you know, I was in, in art school, the art school, uh, Cooper Union was pretty much a fine art school. Didn't really, um, didn't really have an appreciation for commercial art, things like that. And that was good for me in a way. And I spent a lot of time in museums looking at paintings, et cetera. But one of the things that most, um, was developmental to me and maybe the thing that made most sense to me at that point in my life was, I would take these long walks at night around the city, and um, and I would just kind of I'd, about eleven o'clock at night maybe I'd start walking and maybe I'd go till three or four in the morning, and and I would um, feel like um, my eyes and my brain were like tools, and um, and that my heart center was uh, was kind of. Um, the, the, the real active organism. And, um, and I would take in, um, I, we had a teacher at Cooper Union who, Ben Cunningham, he was an op artist. And he said he was a visual voluptuary. And uh, so I took that to heart and I would, I would walk the streets trying to basically absorb, you know, what turned out to be kind of a lot of the substance of my work. I just would, I just would, would, would walk around and, 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 and allow myself to feel like I was guided, like it was kind of uh, kind of a little mysterious or mystical. And I would just, w whatever held me, held me as long as it held me, then let me go. I'd, you know, I'd like, I, I'd, I'd stare in a window with a kind of odd lighting. I'd look at the reflections and puddles, the textures and the sidewalks, the, you know, the people. I'd, you know, I'd go talk to what, what we called then street people, people that, had unusual ways of looking at the world and, um, and, um, and, and, uh, just kind of, uh, absorb everything as if it was kind of like, uh, imprinting fossils in my heart center. I didn't really know where it was all headed, but it, it, it was kind of a very rich experience for me. And over time, eventually, and I always had a sketchbook in my pocket. So over time, eventually, um, I, um, uh, I, I, uh, began drawing city pictures and then and we had a, and we had a at one point in printmaking I started making etchings of that I made drawings so I so I started just drawing the city streets etc and that became um you know my uh, my essential subject matter and I could I could go into another so uh, yeah, I ahead. wanted to ask you because and this leads into my next question like you know the New York of the 1970s was the New York that my parents warned me about and was basically like the reason why New York, you shouldn't go to New York because at that time, you know, New York was sort of bankrupt. It was not, you know, the Rudy Giuliani New York. So I want to get a sense from you 
but it's also like because it's like the legendary New York. It's where like CBGBs happened and a lot of art stuff happened. And Ford to City dropped you dead. Know, it's yeah. You, you remember that? Hell, hell, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember. And and everybody sort of wants to go back to that because that was that's like the New York where everything happened it seems that there's sort of a mythicness to 70s new york but you were did, there do you, know the, do you know the book love goes to buildings on fire i did you I, know i did the cover for that right and that was 70s new york right yeah, right yeah, right yeah. so so i mean because it's such a legendary time and even my friends who weren't even born then are like oh i wish i could go you know back there to you know the dawn of punk and like that kind of stuff but you were there so what was 70s New York, in your eyes, what was it like? And and don't forget, you're speaking to like a Canadian who knows pretty much nothing about about what it was like. So I'll see how well I can uh, convey it. I would. Well, I got there. I actually got there in in the fall of 1965. Okay. So I was there the late 60s onward, um, and um, it, and in after, in my third year, 1968, I moved into an apartment, uh, a, a th- you know, a three room. Um, uh, railroad flat on McDougal Street, um, and m- my rent was eighty-four dollars and two cents a month. Wow! And uh, and that was on the previous uh, lease. So when I got my new rent-controlled lease, it was ninety-six dollars and sixty-two cents, which it remained for some time. And at some point, I got the was that I expensive got, back then? Like, um, it, at that point, a, a rent of one hundred and fifty or two hundred a month would have been over my head. You know, so <laughs> so um, I think back then, I when I started making money, I might have been making about three thousand a year. I don't remember, but it was uh, uh, yeah, the, you know, money was different then. And uh, but um, uh, but it, nonetheless, there was still there were affordable apartments. Right. There were, but you could get it. I mean, you could get a pretty great apartment for for you know three hundred dollars, and that was. But anyway. Um, and the Upper West Side had these amazing, yeah, the Upper West Side had these like seven room apartments with a view of the river and just amazing amounts of space for, you know, it could, it could be under a hundred a month or 120 or something. And I mean, I have, I, I have a friend in, um, in Soho, an artist who still has, he has a 200 square foot loft from the old days. I think he pays about 170, but that's, but this is this, you know, this just, these are just lucky things right at some point rent control um was kicked out and then they had this thing rent stabilization which meant the rent went up every two or three years now it's you know every two years and and at some point i got the apartment next door to me with a door between them i i didn't think i'd be talking about my rents but it comes up but but anyway the rent i just tell you there were you know there were what we thought of as you know some reasonable rents back then and 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 you know what has happened is just i mean when i in the 1990s when i gave up my apartment on um my two apartments on mcdougal street the 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 landlord uh, that took it over you know illegally i think but he he multiplied the rent by 8 wow so and and it's way beyond that now you right. know so it's completely insane you know they got like uh finance people living like in fourth floor walk-ups you know and and, you know where i mean you know originally i had a bathtub in the kitchen and you know i have one sink the kitchen sink everything and actually i lived on mcdougall street a block from where bob dylan lived a block away although i only saw him once there and a lot of people walking around with guitars you know on their back there were a lot of folk singers and all this stuff and they'd hung around washington square park a lot 
and there were you know comedians and everybody you know starting and and at some point there started to be a lot of you know pot dealers in the park etc and there was um but at one time i was up in my kitchen on mcdougall street and my i was at 118 mcdougall street and next door was 116 and 116 had the gaslight cafe and one time i was i was in my in my kitchen on the fourth floor listening to chris christopherson live in the basement wow. you know next door because it came up right between the buildings and um yeah, it was, uh, it would, I mean, uh, there was, there was a, a lot, you know, the thing was that, um, I, I, you know, yeah, I'd heard the things about don't walk at night in the street and whatever. I, I mean, for many years I walked, uh, all hours of night, not in every single neighborhood, but I, I mean, if I was on 103rd street, uh, getting out of some party on a Saturday night, I'd walk home to McDougal, you know, which is like a hundred blocks and I didn't, I liked to, you know, walk, but anyway, and, um, a lot of the time in the early years, I, I had an old pea coat. I guess I, you know, I was a little scruffy. I guess people didn't think I had money. But, it, what, you know, it was funny. Even in the 70s, I didn't, I didn't notice it. Like one time when I, when I worked in a summer camp for the summer, I sublet my apartment to two street sketch artists, you know, portrait artists that were from France. They stayed in my, you know, I sublet to my place. And, and, uh, when I came back, they said to me, um, oh, God, New York has changed. It's so dangerous. And somebody was killed over somewhere and all this stuff. So after that, and these were like street, people that worked on the street all the time. you right. know. So from, you know, they were like sturdy folks, you know. Anyway, so um, so so after that. You know, upon my return, I, I started being very timid. I'd walk around the neighborhood like very trepidatiously and see, well, where where is all this violent crime that suddenly, where is all this, you know? Anyway, so for about a week, I walked around nervously until I realized it was just as, the way it was. And and personally, um, I, 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 was, I was never mugged until 19, what year was it? 1989 was the first time I was ever mugged. But in all those many years before that, I, uh, I was never mugged um, and, and didn't have a problem. And actually one night in when, whatever year that was, I went out walking. Um, I just went out for one of my night walks and I was walking through Sheridan Square and I see just people running every, the cars, like the traffic was kind of like the cars were kind of stopped. I don't know. There were people running zigzag all over the streets, yelling and screaming. It turned out that was the night of Stonewall. Whoa. So I kind of walked right into the middle of the Stonewall riot. And, um, and, and, um, another time I got out of, um, I got out of the subway. This is either 1973 or 74. I'm not sure. 72, three or four. It was, I think October and it's written about somewhere. And I, and I walked past folk city, which was third street near sixth Avenue. And usually that was closed by 11 o'clock. And they always had signs out front. Joan by picture of Joan by first New York performance, picture of Bob Dylan, first New York performance, you know, you know, these anyway, folk city. Well, it was like, um, a le uh, let's see. It was, um, and so it was about 11 o'clock. No, it was about one o'clock in the morning. Cause okay. they usually close by. Yeah. Yeah. And there was this like bright light coming out of the folk city. And, and I walked in and, um, 
and uh, everybody, you know, there were just people around. And nobody stopped. I mean, there were just people. Anyway, I walked in and I and I looked over by the bar and I saw Phil Oaks, oh, and wow. then talking to him was Joan Baez. And then I walked back in and I saw Allen Ginsberg. He was on the stage in the back. And then I saw Patty Smith sitting and and Eric Anderson, if you know who he was. And anyway, and um, there were all these kind of people. Anyway, and I and I in so in the very back was Bob Dylan, and he had a camera. And he was it was before he went on his tour with the band or whatever it was. And he was and this was Mike Porco. Mike Porco owned Folk City. Right. This was his 60th birthday. Okay. And they so they were all celebrating. So I I walked up to the to there's there was a partition between the you know like a doorway thing a little partition and sitting right here next to you know right like I was standing here where I stood for most of that the evening there. There the you know the time I was there, sitting right here to my right was Bette Midler and she was completely stoned and babbling, just babbling. Oh, and then and then at some point and this I gotta say you know I I was into Elvis and then soul music and R and B and 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 you know all that the black music and the whatever you know I was into a lot of that stuff and I I didn't really get into and I loved Bob Dylan, right. but I but I didn't really get into all the acid rock stuff, you know. So I I had heard Eric Clapton's name, but I didn't know who he was, mm -hmm. and uh, I had a vague notion. But anyway, at some point he because they were got, anyway at some point he got up on the stage and he was completely drunk, and I was trying to play the guitar, and he said, "It's." I remember he said, "It's hard being a legend." <laughs> anyway, so that was a pretty crazy night at. Um, so anyway, I'm trying to give you a taste of did what he, was. Did he? Did you draw that? that I didn't time? draw any of that. No, okay. no, I just took that in. But that was um, uh, I used to go to Folk City on the free nights. So on Monday nights was was uh, I mean I was broke. You know I'd go there every Monday night and all they'd have all the the you know everybody could get up and do three songs. Mm -hmm. The best guy that I saw in those days was Jack Hardy, who was really good. He was I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was really great. Unfortunately, he died. But and um, and this guy um, oh gosh now I now I'm not remembering his oh I wish I could I. I had his name and I lost it. But anyway, a, re a really great singer who's still around. He's he's uh, he's half African American. He's uh, I think uh, I can't remember his name. He's anyways. But but a lot of the people weren't that good. But I I spent a lot of time in Folk City, but never paid anything. Right, right. And then this this night I um Locked I uh, caught, yeah it was great. Amazing. Yeah. So. Your parents, you said that they were like gag cartoonists. Yes. Do, would we know them? Has any of their work been collected? Or um, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, not collected. You might, you probably might know. You could, if you, my, some of my father's, my father's name was Stanley Stamity. And if you Google his name, it might come up. And actually, yeah, my mother's name, Clara G. Kastner Stamity. It'll, it'll, my, she's going to turn 100 on May 15th. Wow. And she is, um, uh, if you Google her, something comes up about a show she had when she was, I think, 90 of, you know, her, her work and, and wow. things. My father died in 1979. So, uh, he's, he's been gone for, but, for quite a while. But your mother's still around. My mother's, my mother's going to be a hundred. Wow. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Isn't that Congratulations. Something? Thank you. That's Thank you. She actually, Congratulations to her. Yeah. 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 So, yeah that's awesome. So, uh, um, so yeah, so. So you're you're walking around, you're drawing. Yeah. Obviously, it were it, was it these drawings that became the root of what was McDoodle Street? Well, what, well, I'll tell you that. Okay, so McDoodle Street, um, uh, McDoodle Street was. I, I I'll tell you prior to that. Okay, so who needs donuts? Basically, I'll just say one night when I was in art school. 
um, in Cooper Union. I would always one of the places I used to go is I used to go to a Bickert's coffee shop okay. on on Twenty um, Third and Third, and I would have always have a sketch pad with me wherever I went. And I but I would go. It was a, a coffee shop that was open all night. It just had a curving counter and a zigzagging kind of counter. And um, and one night I happened to go in there. And um, and there was an old woman that was kind of like, and I would watch all the crazy characters and take notes and draw sketches and things. And right. So one night, I walk in there. It was a, there was an old woman who was kind of asleep on the counter, and uh, so I sat down. And about twenty minutes passed, and um, a guy comes in. He says he's got a tie and jacket and overcoat, and he said, "I'd like two cups of coffee to go." And the waitress says, would you like donuts with your coffee? And he says, no, thank you. And at that point, this old woman picks up her head, points at the plastic ceiling fixture and said, that's right. Who needs donuts when you've got love? <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, <laughs> I, at that point, I made a sign um, that, where I wrote that on there. And, and eventually that became, um, you know, who needs donuts? I, I decided when I started doing, after I did Yellow Yellow, which right. is being reprinted by... Uh, in font drawn in quarterly in um, in on May twenty first, uh, that was the first book I illustrated, written by Frank Ash a, a Frank Ash A S C H. Um, uh, I I wanted to write my own book and uh, and I I decided I I wanted after a few failures I decided I wanted to write a book about something I really cared about and I had that sign on my wall and I said I want to make that woman famous for saying that and then I would say that. Um, you know, a lot of times I would hang out with these kind of street people. And one time I was on St. Mark's Place and um, there was a guy trying by what used to be called the Dom or by the Electric Circus, whatever. And this guy had this this big old mattress and he was trying to sleep on this mattress, probably like two o'clock in the morning or one o'clock. I don't know, one o'clock St. Mark's Place. And uh, and and he was he was a little uncomfortable. I don't know. Anyway. A short while later, I saw him walking around, and I went up to him. I just started talking to him, and I got his whole story, his like his life story, practically. And uh, his name was his name was Eddie Reddy, and uh, uh, first name rhymed with a second name. And he told me his whole story about being in the army in, in World War Two for for uh, seven years, and on and on. And anyway, and. Um, I ended up um, naming the guru of McDoodle Street after Eddie Reddy, although I changed the spelling. I, I spelled it R-E-T-T-I instead of D's. And, um, and uh, uh, you know, um, McDoodle Street um, was basically um, the story of Malcolm Frazzle. Right. He's a, uh, a poet who writes poetry for Dishwasher Monthly. And he hangs out in the Cafe Fizz. I did. I wrote a lot of that in the Sandalino Cafe and a lot of other cafes and all night Greek American restaurants. Uh, but anyway, I used to. But anyway, so Malcolm Frazzle is trying to write his poem, and uh, suddenly the 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 um, cafe is invaded by the Conservative Liberation Front, and uh -huh. they are uh, basically the the cafe has a policy. You know, it's a Bohemian you know hangout, and they had a policy that uh, that. Um, all uh, customers were required to either either have a beard or rent a beard, and you could rent rent a beard for two dollars. And neckties were prohibited. And the conservative liberation front they came in wearing like twelve ties each, all on their heads and on their you know everything. And they uh, they basically staged a protest, and and among them were some Wayne Newton fans. And uh, 
the Wayne Newton, uh, Malcolm was trying to write his poem. He couldn't think of a decent rhyme. And, and um, the, when the conservative liberation front declared all their demands, they, um, they demanded that, uh, that there be five hours a day um, of Wayne Newton records in the, um, in the, you know, the PA system and the cafe. Right. Up, whereupon Malcolm made a, uh, you know, an un- unpleasant remark about Wayne Newton. And little, see, this was 1978 when I started doing this. Jimmy Carter was the president. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan was thought of as a crazy nut, you know, by a lot of people. I mean, that he's, he's going to blow up the world and never, nobody thought he'd be elected president. And um, I had no idea of Wayne Newton's politics because I just didn't like his, uh, his, you know, he used to go on the Ed Sullivan show when I was a kid right. and he was like 11 years old and he just sing the corniest songs and I couldn't stand Wayne Newton. Mm. Little that I realized that he was going to sing at the, um, perform at the 1980 Republican convention two years later when Ronald Reagan would be nominated and the conservatives would take over. So uh, I must have had ESP. I don't know. Oh, but, wow. um, and uh, so McDoodle Street was an effort to capture just the insanity of um, New York, the, how much I loved the craziness of New York. And, and it has a kind of a meandering... Um, uh, plot line and and but it does resolve it all comes together in the end um, I was experimenting I wanted to experiment with the form of a comic strip at some point the comic strip itself becomes a character in the comic strip at some point I found out it had a drinking problem I didn't realize that initially so it got kind of out of control but um, so the comic strip would one one episode it just went out and got drunk and walked around and made made trouble um, and so I, I, I was, I was experimenting, uh, as, as much as I could with the form of a, of a comic strip and, and, uh, kind of conveying my love of the city, um, and, and, and all the crazy people and, and, um, and, um, and anyway, so, and, and it, it, it had a beginning, middle end. I, I always wanted to write graphic novels, so I wrote it as a graphic novel, and then four strips after um, the end of the uh, after the story ended, four or five strips after that, the strip kind of drifted off and said it was coming back and never did. So when New York Review Comics wanted to reprint McDoodle Street, they asked me to do um, something at the end to to explain what happened. You know, to why didn't it ever come back? So I did a twenty-page comic strip addendum that told the story of of you know why it never came back and what and how what I went through at that point um helped me to continue being a cartoonist because um I really had to open myself up in another way I I you know I I really had to go beyond um what I I had to do and I had to do the next thing and 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 I um in that period I had a um I did another uh, experimental comic strip of, of a very different type after McDoodle Street that I called Cartoon, which I spelled C-A-R-R-R-T-T-T-O-O-O-O-N-N-N. Um, and that really enabled me to to sort of continue forward and be able... When, when I got the call from the editorial page editor of the Washington Post who wanted me to do a McDoodle Street version of Washington... Um, I was ready for it. You know, it was, right. it was sort of, the know. cartoon was sort of like a palate cleanser sort of thing. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, basically it helped me, it really helped me trust my unconscious. It really helped me. You know, what happened was 
Um, I, you know, I, I, I did McDoodle. I, I was very happy with the way I had done McDoodle Street, but as I was doing it, you know, I, I, I gradually, um, you know, people would say, oh, that's, you know, it's so people week to week, they'd say, oh, it was a really funny strip this week. I really loved it. And I, and I would think funny, what, what's that? How did I, how did I do that? What am, how am I going to be funny next week? You know, and over time I hung in, but basically it kind of took over my life and, uh, I, I, I didn't want to mess it up, you know, but basically it was, I just felt like I'm doing this in a way that I can, I can do this beginning, middle end, but I can't do this for my whole life this way. So then, so then the next, um, strip was a th- was was really where i i went into a, a kind of a zone where i i just couldn't be um uh i just couldn't be so self-conscious i had to you know and and uh basically um w- you know w- w- um, what happened was i st- i stopped doing the strip i i did the rest of the front matter for the book and i was hoping that i could uh you know come back and do mcdoodle street but um but i was really kind of tight and then but the exactly you got too self-conscious to finish. To I finish well, it. I to do it. I know to go forward. I finished it. Yeah. To go to do it to continue doing McDoodle Street okay. and what I was doing. I just that was done. You know, I yeah. I, I at least for the time being and right. for years. You know, it was just not. It was just not. How, it wasn't fun anymore. Right. It was. It just. I did what I wanted to do. I love it. You know. I always said. At that point, it was the closest I ever got to what I wanted to do in terms of graphic novels, right. you know, which I, but, but the thing, the thing was, that was, it was what it was. I had to do something new. And, uh, but, but what happened was that exactly in the hour that I was delivering the book to the, uh, the book publisher, my father died, like right exactly then. Oh, wow. And, and, and when I, when I first delivered it, I felt this great relief, you know, like a big job. I was really happy with it. I, you know, and now I'm ready for the next thing. It turned out the next thing was my father died. And so then that was, I was an only child very close to my father. Um, that was, you know, a lot to deal with. And I, you know, in that next coming period, it was about a six month period. I, I would repeatedly, I tried to keep doing McDoodle Street, no, to continue doing it, but it just was very tight. And I was in a very different kind of mindset. And so after about six months, I was, uh, I was at a, um, a panel discussion of the, um, the school of visual arts. And, uh, there were, there was like four illustrators at a table, you know, talking and I was in the audience and, um, as often I had done in school, I, at some point I just sort of mindlessly pulled out a sketch pad, half thinking, and a rapidograph pen, and I just made this kind of doodle of something, and I and uh, you know a, a horse or something, and and I kind of you know half thinking, I finished the sort of composition, flipped the page, barely thinking, did another one. During that talk, I did about fifteen of these things, okay. and at the end of it, I realized. I had actually had fun drawing again. So, um, so I went home and I looked at my McDoodle efforts to, you know, revive McDoodle street. And I said, um, and I set them aside and I set out a, uh, a nine by 12 Bristol pad, took out a rapidograph. And I said to myself, I'm going to make a comic strip with one goal in mind. I don't care if it's funny. I don't care if anybody likes it. I don't even care if anybody sees it. I just want to have fun doing it. Right. 
And so I did this, um, this kind of, in the beginning, it was almost like nonsense words and, and I could sort of half drawn figure and, and, um, and then gradually, um, it kind of took form and, and, um, and eventually it was sort of about me at my drawing board feeling like a hack and, and on and on. Anyway, so I did, I did three strips that night and I felt really good about it. And then I, and then, so I just kept doing them, not showing them to anybody after I'd done about 50 not wanting to show anybody and have anybody react to them. I, I was dating this woman at the time, and I said, hey, you want to see these things? And she looked at them, and she said, oh, this is great. These are great. So, And then a few weeks later, I ran into a, 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 a copy editor from The Voice. Mm-hmm. We went for coffee, and I said, would you like to see these? Anyway, she said, these are great. You should show them to David, the editor. Right. And I did, and he had the same reaction. He said, when do you want to come back? And then, and then for a year, I did that very experimental kind of a strip where um, it was, and, and I kind of, it was almost like dared people to not like, I mean, it was like, I, it, it, I, I didn't, it's like I was doing what I wanted to do and I, and I was allowing myself to get used to any kind of reaction to it. Right. And I had to, I had to go through that period. And then after I did it for about a year, I got the call from Washington. And then next thing I went on to do the, the political strip and at that point my uh, sort of stage fright or self-consciousness I, I, I was um I, I basically had um uh I had basically accepted it and I and I kind of like actually enjoyed it I enjoyed the the fact of of kind of challenging failure and uh taking a leap in the dark and it, and it, it became kind of um energizing to to take the risk wow so with Washington, I mean, that's sort of a it's sort of a political satire of like Washington. It's like, yeah, yeah. Like you were saying, a McDoodle Street for Washington. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if you see that kind of thing in the same way anymore. See if I see what kind of no, thing. no. If you see the kinds of things that like Washington was doing uh-huh. to politicians, like in the same in the same way anymore, you know, with the current political situation, so. I was wondering, like, what were you bringing to Washington to, like, set it apart from McDoodle Street? Because you don't want it to be exactly Yeah, no, it was, well, it was, I had a, I was, well, I was, I was aiming at politics. I guess I was, you know, I was bringing who and what I was to, um, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, sort of methodically thinking, well, I, you know, that looked like that and that looks like that. And I don't want that to look like that. I basically was, I was bringing my new self to where I was without preconception kind of, you know, and, and, um, and, and one thing I did, but, but, you know, one time in, in 1980, I, you know, I did a lot of research in my Washington years, but, and, and I went to all the political conventions. I went on the campaign trail. I did a lot, a lot of research and I knew a lot of smart people and I got a lot of really smart fans in Washington and other places who would communicate with me. So I, I really, um, could research by asking questions also a lot of, but basically, um, but the first convention I ever went to was when I, before Washington it was 1980 in, in New York when they renominated Jimmy Carter. Cause they, I was at the voice and they happened to, um, have the democratic convention there. And, um, so I, I, so I, I went to that, that convention, um, just to see, um, to see what it was about. And I ran into a friend of mine who was a cartoonist. And, um, so he, he took me to see this other guy who was a political, some kind of political cartoonist for a newspaper in the Midwest. 
And um, so, so I, we, we went with this uh, person to, uh, to look at the faxes of all the political cartoons being done at the convention, um, you know, that day, whatever they were, I don't know, they were coming into some area where you could see them. And uh, <clears throat> so, so um, this, this cartoonist was, this editorial cartoonist, he's looking at these things and he's, and, and he's saying things like, oh, he did that one. Oh, oh, he did that one, you know, and and when I when I heard that, I just thought, oh God, you know. And when I started doing political cartoons, one thing I did not want to do was that one. Right. So so you um, didn't want to be so I branded and yeah, recognizable. Well, well, what it is is like there's the same issues come along, and a lot of times you see the same gag by five different people, right. and there's all this, you know, and on and on. Yeah. And so, and I didn't want to be in. I wanted to do something original. I've always wanted to try to do something different, new, original. That's mine. Right. Otherwise, why in the hell am I doing it? I might as well drive a truck. Although I'd be a lousy truck driver, so. I'd, I once drove a cab for a year, but but the, I couldn't handle a truck anyway. So I had to, to be a cartoonist the way I had to be one. So, okay, so um, so one thing I, I felt about doing Washington was um, I'm going to do... So I, 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 when, when Meg Greenfield said to me, uh, she was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post, she said to me, um, uh, you know, I want you to do a McDoodle Street version of Washington... Um, I said to her, I'm going to have to research this the way I research New York City. I'm going to have to be in Washington a lot, and I'm going to have to, you know. So basically, for seven months, I went to, like, tons of congressional hearings day after day. I'd spend all day in the on the Hill. Then I'd go to the Washington Post, and I'd be Xeroxing things and reading things all night, go till late at night. I was staying with some cousins in Bethesda, Maryland. That he would the, the, he drove into the city every day, so he drive he would drive me into to town, and I'd go to the Dirksen Building, the whatever the Russell Building. I'd go, I'd go to all these endless hearings. I'd go to the White House press room, all this stuff. Right. Okay, so, um, so and 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 part of my theory was part of my effort to do something original was. I was gonna get. I was gonna get to subject matter that everybody wasn't doing. I was gonna try to get to some parts of these issues that, like, four hundred cartoonists weren't gonna all hit that day. You know, right. I wanted to find a, my own way to do it. And right. so, I'd say there was my research, and there was just my gut of just trying to find my own way into it. And and you know, just like with with McDoodle Street. Uh, just like with with you know who needs donuts, um, it, it, you know it was always a matter of you know absorbing things and and then um, and then what comes through. You know it kind of you know hopefully hopefully there's a kind of a mystical magical process with me, within me. You know that things stir around uh, and something comes through and it's mine. You know it's not it's not and 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 the other thing was. Before I started, uh, when I after I was when I was just beginning to to uh, make the first four Washingtons that I showed to Meg right. after the seven months, Meg Greenfield was oh, the, the editorial editor. page okay. editor of the Washington Post, okay. and I had to show her something finally, okay. you know. And um, so I uh, just before that happened, I happened to see Dick Cavett interview um, Ray Bradbury. Right. And and Ray Bradbury, you know, is is all about fertility and creativity. And Ray Bradbury said how he approaches writing or one way, you know, he says, I go in the library, 
and I and I pull some random book off the shelf and I read some of that and then I put it up and then I go to another part and I grab another book and I read some of that and then I go and I read and you know and he says and I just and I just keep just basically taking in all this stuff and all this stuff all this stuff and eventually it creates this mulch inside of me and then my work comes through like that right. and I felt and 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 you know methodically that was the way that I thought about yeah I'm just going to jam everything I can into me about politics and and see what happens see and what comes and, out. and you also it's like sand in a in a in an oyster you know it's like I want to get irritated you know you got to be you know like basically <laughs> That if you're going to be, a, especially if you're going to be a political cartoonist, you want to be irritated, you know, and that's really what, you know, and that's the energy, you know, so, um, so, uh, you know, I'd spend the week just, just filling my stuff, myself full of stuff. And a lot of times as the deadline would close in, I just like find out what came through, you know, what, where, you know, what, what was in my psyche. Just like when I go to the Metropolitan Museum, a lot of times, um, I look at a lot, a lot of paintings. I used to live right near there for a period of time. And I, and, and, uh, I just, I, you know, I'd go look at a whole bunch of stuff. And when I walk out of the museum, I would just kind of allow, like, what comes to my mind now? Like which of all the things I saw, like what comes forth, right. you know? And so it was kind of, that's kind of how I did the strip too. You, you mentioned that you wanted it to be different than what the other political cartoonists were doing. I wanted it to be original. I wanted original it to be mine. Thing. Yeah. 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 So what came through? What, what were the types well, of things that you dealt with in your own uh, angle that people Well, congressman, congressman, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll talk just about me. I mean, I don't want to say it as an attack okay. on anybody <laughs> no, else, but but it was Congressman Bob Forehead was the center of it, and he was uh, he was a JFK lookalike. You know, I was uh, 16 when when President Kennedy was killed. You know, I loved President Kennedy, and it was it was a very dark thing, and and uh, in some way, you know, it set off a lot of darkness to come, and and also. Uh, you know, I remember when Bobby was killed and that, and, uh, anyway, so that, and then Martin Luther King was killed that same year as Bobby, you know, but, but the, uh, the thing was, um, Kennedy, you know, he was the first television president and right. he, and he had this, he had this kind of, he had, he was a, this cool guy, really good looking guy. And he had, he's very charismatic. And, um, so, so he, um, uh, so, and and so when I was first going down to Washington and doing all that research and I'd go to congressional hearings, I noticed a whole bunch of these guys and a lot of them Republicans looked like JFK. They had the haircut. They did them. You know, there was a way of carrying himself. Yeah. And um, the vocal delivery. That yeah, kind of the stuff. whole. Yeah. And then there was an article on the cover of the Washingtonian magazine and had a picture of Representative Jack Kemp. And he was a supply sider, conservative Republican. And, and it said, um, and it was an article about the Kennedys of the right. right. And a lot of them referred back to, they said that JFK's tax cut was, um, was this, you know, JFK had a tax cut and they, and they had this notion of um, a rising tide lifts all boats. So if you have a big tax cut, then, then the economy will do better and then everybody will do better. That's and that was also, yeah, yeah. I know still Republicans clung to that. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Still and, are. and they, yeah. And they used to love the, the, yeah. And then, well, then Reagan embraced that, you know, but basically, and Jack Kemp was totally about that. But the other thing was 
that had another name, which was Trickle Down Economics. It's and I actually did one of my, my fourth cartoon was, was there was this thing called the Laffer Curve, which was Gerald or whatever his name was, Laffer, uh, Arthur Laffer. He was a, an economist who drew this thing on a napkin that was supposed to show how big tax cuts make everything, you know, uh, everything go well and everybody, you know, the world. Anyway, and... Um, and there were a lot of flaws in that whole thing. So a lot of so it was, Bob Forehead was a big supply cider, and eventually he was basically a political garbage can. It was just all the worst, you know, uh, you know, hypocrisies of of politicians would go into my character Bob Forehead. Um, and then um, and I also had a thing. I had a a cabinet official um, who was a um, the perceiver general. Okay. And that was all about perception is reality right. that, you know, in politics. And I also had something I had had in McDoodle street that I carried over into, into, um, and developed more into, um, Washington was I had a charismatician and they would, they would basically measure the charisma of a politician and they'd have him, you know, carried, roll up his sleeves and in an inch more to, for more charisma and, you know, et cetera. And, um, and then, um, and I had Gerard Oxbogle, who was a big um, mogul, and um, and I guess in just in 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 um, in every way I could, I um, I just wanted to um, to find what my gut had to say about it, and what imagery my and what notions my gut would come up with. You know, a lot of a lot of it is you feel something, and then it's like a lot of times I I would develop a strip panel to panel, and um, and the first thing is, it's, you know, it is what comes forth, you know, what, like, this bothers me. You know, it's funny, uh, my friend Tom Tolls, who is, uh, um, he's a cartoonist for the Washington Post, he was at the Buffalo News back then, right. but he, he, he was a appreciator of uh, McDoodle Street a lot, and he was appreciator of Washington, and we used to see each other at these um, cartoonist uh, dinners at, um, at, at, um, uh, the Washington Post they had once a year, and we became good friends. And and we would have these conversations. And uh, I mean, I sometimes I talked to him on the phone, and he and he he couldn't quite figure out like like what was my approach to what I did. And I wasn't that aware exactly of of. I mean, I did what I did it how I did it. It was very kind of intuitive. But one time I happened to mention to him. I said something about three ideas, you know, like I usually have like three things that are bugging me right. and, and, and what comes out of the chemistry of that. As soon as I said that, he said, you know, three things or three mm -hmm. ideas. Oh, that's what it is. I, d I hadn't really thought of it that way, but basically um, I guess it was, I'd, I'd have like, after jamming all this stuff in my system all week, it's like, what are the things you know, what things are, are in my psyche now and, and what do they do with each other? And, and a lot of writing is about listening. You know, you feel something and just listen, like what, how do I, how do I, you know, I'm mad about this. Like, you know, what is it? And then, and, and just trying to write whatever words come until there's something that kind of grips the page and then, and then get a panel and an image that's, that, 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 that has some energy and then and then a lot of times I just I read that over and then I listen and read that over you're and listen. listen to like your intuitive to my sense. Ins yeah, yeah, exactly. Your inner exactly. Feelings about something. Exactly. Yeah. And wanting and wanting it to come from there and be something that's, you know, springs from me originally. Right, you know? right. You also in those characters that you list, you're using 
the characters to deliver the commentary, right? Yeah, like that yeah. kind of thing. You know, so the commentary comes through the characters and their personality and the way that they act and the stereotypes that they are trying to convey and that sort of thing. Yeah, and the and the the mm. stupid things they say and do, which mm, right. um, you know, right. So. A lot, you know, not only are you jamming stuff in your head, absorbing a lot, even with McDoodle Street and walking around the city and, and with Washington, but you also jam a lot onto the page. Like for something like Who Needs Donuts or, or your, your picture book stuff. And, and on, on my website, you know, I'll say there, there's these, uh, the, the voice before I did the comic strips, I did this like a glimpse of Greenwich Village right. and, uh, and Times Square, which were, you know, I mean, which were, you know, just, just posters exactly. The way, I, I, yeah. I find that like, even though your, your thought process is very dense, your style is also very dense. Mm -hmm. Is that intentional or is that something that just comes to you in the same way? Like what makes you want to fill the page with everything possible you can do in the same way that you fill your mind with everything that you could possibly absorb. Well, it's, I guess, you know, different people have, I would say not everything I do is, is, is packed like that, I guess. And, you know, and more recently, not everything I do is packed like that, but I would, but I would say that, um, uh, you know, different people like different things. Right. Um, but that, but there's, there's an, to me, there's an energy, you know, like, like any visual thing that I look at. I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at abstract paintings. I love William, Willem de Kooning. I love, you know, Pollock. I, I love uh, this, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, abstract painters, Gorky, um, Bram von Veld, you know, uh, Miro, um, you know, et cetera. But anyway, um, and that's all about like energy, you know, like, 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 you know, in every, in every, and, and a lot of times when I go to museums, like if I look at, you know, Max Beckman, for instance, like I love Max Beckman, but, and I love Picasso and my favorite painter is Matisse and, 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 and it, and the thing is there's the, there are the, the subject matter. That's one thing. But more than the subject matter, what what interests me is really the composition. Sometimes I don't, I barely notice what the subject matter is, but the you know the juxtaposition of color and form and structure, all that stuff, you know, all that has an energy to it. You know, behind any picture, there's an energy to it. So, so among something that I just am drawn to and like to do in my work, there's a certain kind of insane, intense energy. That for me is satisfying, you know, and 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 I try to capture, like in the case of the city, or even when it's not the city. When I was in art school, um, I did an etching that actually ended up getting in a lot of prestigious ex exhibitions. It won some awards, um, and it was a large, a very large thing that was kind of inspired by Tiepolo, where all these like cherubs are flying in the sky and everything, um, and you know, uh, some kind of deity figure. I, I, it, it's. Um, but just, you know, all that, but the thing is, it's, it, it's, it's the kind of the abstract energy of it is, is, is appealing to me. And, an, and an interesting thing happened, you know, when I, when I would go to, uh, um, art museums, you know, in the years when, when in school, like in the years after that, where, where those walks, you know, fed me and where I would also go to art museums that, that, um, would feed me and, 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 and the whole thing about the feeling that you can get from art in some way, um, you can you can also easily kind of disregard what's happening. I think there are a lot of people where the pragmatic 
elements of their life maybe cause them to just dismiss a lot of potential experience within themselves. But, but personally, the idea that I could go to a museum for a couple hours and come out breathing better, feeling better, um, uplifted, you know, it's like, well, what is that? You know, is that just some, some non-existent fantasy notion that's not, has any basis in reality or is that something real? Is that really, you know, energy? And one time, um, so I guess I thought of it as energy or I, I didn't have a name for it. And one time, uh, when I lived near the Met, I used to go in there frequently and, and treat it like my living room. And, uh, a lot of times I'd always go to European paintings or engravings or etchings or whatever to certain kinds of, you know, certain areas. But, but then I started just wandering. I'd gone there so much. I started wandering off into all different sections. So at one point I went off in the Asian section one day and there was a, a lecturer giving a talk about um, Chinese painting and, and uh, basically about Chinese scholars in like the 1500s, 1600s. I'm not sure what exactly years this was that there were these Chinese scholar, scholars that would look at these things called scholar's rocks. And they were, they were these, these rock formations that were very kind of turbulent looking and, and, um, and roiling kind of turbulent looking. And then they would also sit and contemplate a certain Chinese painting of that era where, where there'd be like tree trunks that were very gnarled and complex and roiling kind of, uh, and, and she said what they would, look at these things and meditate on them and they would receive chi okay. from these things. And when she said that, I realized, yeah, this is not some imaginary thing that doesn't exist. This is, this is a real thing called chi. And when I look at art, it comes into my heart center and it revitalizes me. And when I make my art, I'm putting chi into the page and I, and, and hopefully the person looking at it will receive chi. So it's a, it's a real thing. And so, and so I am drawn to that, um, you know, that, uh, the, I mean, the, in terms of the kind of complicated images you're talking about, there, you know, there's one that I did that's, it's on my website. I'm not, now I'm trying to think of what it's called, but it's uh, it's under uncommissioned work. And, um, and it's a city drawing that, you know, a lot of my, like my, my posters of Greenwich Village and Times Square and, and also my Who Needs Donuts, the book and, you know, and, and, um, and McDoodle Street, they have a lot of gags in there. Yellow, right. yellow has, yellow, yellow also um, has, has gags in there, you know, but, but the thing with, uh, but, you know, every now, sometimes I just like my etchings uh, tend to just be drawings that I do directly on. They're not really planned. I do them as I do them. Um, in the case of this one drawing, which won a gold medal from Society of Illustrators, um, 2004, it, it was, um, uh, it was, it was one of these drawings where I basically just started drawing this kind of city picture the way I wanted to draw it and being as, you know, as loose as I felt to be. And, and it was all about the energy so that when there were certain parts of the drawing that, that felt a little dead, I would just cut out another sheet of paper, glue it right over, and then draw over that piece of paper. And it was all about the energy, that the energy not be stagnant, you know, that the energy have a... And, and it's just an intuitive sense so of So in making your drawings more dense, you're trying to pack as much chi as possible well well i might say well you know the thing about that is you can i would say i would say um i think it's about chi i i'd say that you know there's 
different images have different aesthetics, you know, right. like, like I can appreciate Mondrian and I can appreciate, um, uh, you know, some other painter like Matisse. I love Matisse. And, and, and it's, I'd say, um, uh, it's, it's not necessarily all about packing, but it's about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's about what this image uh, you know what the energy of this image is about right. so i would say it's it, you know it, it's not sort of a calculated thing of packing it's more a matter of what what feels what intuitively what do i want it to feel like the energy yeah the, yeah the yeah, vitality yeah i don't mean of the to, yeah 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 I didn't, I, and yeah. it seems like the more vital an image is the more stuff is is well in that it. happens i guess yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's actually it's for someone like you to look at my stuff and say, "Oh, well, this is what it is," you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm just the guy who makes it. You feel in a lot of what you're saying, you know, a lot of your technique, like I'm, you're the vessel. You, you, you're taking stuff in and you're filtering and seeing what comes out. So, and I want to, and I'd like to surprise myself if I right, can. Right, right, awesome. So the only other thing that I that I want to talk about because your first uh, published work, Yellow Yellow, is also uh, getting released right around the time of the release of this podcast. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how you broke in to okay. doing published art and that sort so of thing. So Frank Ash, A-S-C-H. Yeah. Uh, I went to school with him. And in our in our junior and senior year at Cooper Union, he started getting books published, right. like from McGraw-Hill Publisher. He got a couple of books published. And um, so uh, one day... Um, Actually, one day I happened to have my portfolio at, at school and I, I had it because somebody had told me to go see an art director. I didn't actually, that was a whole other story about <clears throat> some art director that I didn't, I didn't even know who the person was or where I was, but I happened to have a big portfolio full of a whole lot of my drawings and I came back to the Cooper Union cafeteria and uh, I saw Frank and sat down and he said, hey, is that your stuff? I said, yeah. And he looked, he started looking through it and he said, oh, I really like your stuff. He said, would you like to illustrate a kid's book? And I said, sure. And um, so, uh, so Frank had extra stories. He's a very prolific writer. He's a genius. He's a really brilliant, talented guy, Frank Ash, A-S-C-H. And uh, so he... Um, uh, so he first he gave me this half story that he'd written about something about sometimes some people are good dogs and some dogs are good people or something. And I started drawing all these drawings about people and dogs and dogs turning into people or whatever. <clears throat> and I went down to Frank's Ludlow Street apartment and I showed him uh, what I had. And he said, oh, yeah, these are great drawings. But, you know, I was thinking about this other story that I wrote. So he showed me this thing that that would become yellow, yellow. And he had a very minimalist kind of a uh, um, uh, dummy that was, you know, in a sketch pad. And uh, it was, you know, it was just barely had any, any is the minimal amount of lines to indicate anything. And it was about a kid who finds this helmet and uh, that's, that belongs to some man. And anyway, so then I took it back to my apartment. I started doing it. Now, I assumed that helmet was, was a, uh, a construction worker. And... Um, so I drew, so there, and the, and this, there was a library, the Bops library at NYU was being built at that time. This was like 1969, 70. So, and I lived on McDougal street right near there. I'd walk over and I'd look at this construction site and there was all kind of, you know, pieces of cinder blocks and thing, all kind of stuff all over. And I started drawing all the little stuff that was all over the ground, you know, and, and, and I started drawing, you know, things from the, 
construction site. Oh, let me just take a sip. I started uh, uh, drawing all this stuff, and I did some pretty detailed drawings of this kid finds this con- this uh, this uh, construction worker's helmet at a at a construction site, and then eventually he meets the the guy who owns the hat and all this stuff. I go back to Ludlow Street and I show it to Frank, and Frank says to me, "You know, uh, these are great drawings, but you know, I was thinking of doing this uh, that you do this other thing, you know." So, and I said, "Frank, no, no, this one. I'm gonna yeah, do this yeah, one, yeah, okay?" Yeah. And then, and then he said, "And by the way, this was 1969." He said to me, "And by the way," he said. That's not a construction worker. That's a cop. This is supposed to be about the the uh, the uh, 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago, where the police ta- with the helmets attacked all the peace demonstrators. Uh, and, and I, I and, thought those helmets were white, but you know whatever. Uh, they could. I think they were white, but he basically. Well, they I, they probably were, but that's what he wanted. He wanted yeah. it to be, and he wanted it to be about do your own thing, and he wanted it to be this political book. I said, Frank. I don't want to make a political children's book. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. And and so he said, "All right, all right." You know, it's your... so anyway. I did these drawings, and then then he went to McGraw Hill and said, "Oh, I got this guy doing these illustrations." I said, "What?" You know, we don't anyway. But then they saw my drawings, and they loved my drawings. So then that was great. Okay, so then I so then I did all the drawings for Yellow Yellow. Okay, honest to God, this is what happened. I so I delivered the the all the final drawings to the editor at McGraw-Hill on May 1st, 1970, at around midday, right? Right. And then, and then she took me out to lunch, okay? And, um, and anyway, they loved the drawings. I was all excited, okay? And then I, I went downtown um, after lunch, and, I, and at that time, Nixon had just bombed Cambodia. And, and on 14th Street and 5th Avenue, um, uh, the, the, the graduate uh, school of the new school had been taken over by all the students. And I had a friend named Wilbur who was a teacher assistant graduate student right. there, okay? So students were all over the place, you know, and, then it was, anyway, they had, they had taken over the school. And I run into, I walk in there where I used to go and, you know, just say hi to Wilbur, if I saw him, anyway. So there's Wilbur, I run into him, and, and this is the first thing he says to me, hey, did you hear what happened at lunchtime today? I said, no, what? What happened? He said, at City Hall, there was a peace demonstration at lunchtime. And in the middle of the demonstration, a bunch of construction workers attacked the anti-war demonstrators. It was exactly, (laughs) it was exactly then that it became a, you know, that construction workers became a political uh, symbol. And there was, when the book came out, there was somebody out in the Midwest who objected to this political uh, you know, book, but anyway, it so became a children's book, even when you weren't meaning for it. Well, know. it became a political, yeah, yeah, it became yeah, yeah, a political, political yeah, book. connotation to it that yeah. I didn't, I didn't want at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah so, yeah. yeah, so, so that happened. So before I let you go and, and ask you what you're doing uh, these days currently, um, since you hung out with the real Dennis the Menace, what was he like as a child? You know, I don't remember him real well. I remember he gave me a, like a, a little, like a, uh, kind of a plastic ray gun that that um, it had like a red tube at the front and it um, and it had a um, uh, and it lit up in the front. I remember that and I remember playing in his in his yard in Connecticut. Um, 
can't give you a lot of insight. It was a long time. I was I was about five or six or seven. I don't know. Yeah, still a blonde kid with a slingshot. He was a blonde kid. Yeah, I didn't have. A, he, I I don't recall a slingshot. Yeah, that may just come out of Hank's uh, imagination. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, what are you doing these days? I mean, you're promoting work yeah. from the '70s right. that you're very known for, but. But what what's your work like in in present day? Okay, so in present day, I'm I'm working on two graphic novels, and there's a children's book that I wrote, a uh, uh, that children's book that's sort of in comic book format, although it's it's a 32 page, it's in panels, but they're they're big panels uh, mostly, and uh, I would say it's a it's it's a it's a little bit of a um, of a parody of 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 it's a little bit of a parody of something in the in the world of children's books at the same time, it's actually, I think a really good story. And it's, and, and the two people that have uh, two, my agent and an editor think it's very funny. So I wanted, I'm looking forward to doing this, this book. And this is actually a much simpler book. I mean, the imagery is much simpler, but, uh, but I'm very happy about that. And then in turn, but what my two also passion projects, I, I, I have 65 pages, six chapters, of a, uh, of a graphic novel that's, um, and it's also, you know, my style is, is, um, more open up. It's not, it, this is, is generally not as dense as, uh, as McDoodle Street and, and other things, but it's, uh, it's about a cowboy. It's, I grew up watching Westerns, so it's about a cowboy, a cowgirl, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, a, but it's, um, it, it's, it goes in places that Westerns don't, normally go and i would say it's not necessarily it's not really a satire or a, i mean i think it's you know my wife thinks it's funny my agent thinks it's funny they both like it a lot um i love it uh it it um but it goes it's it's i'd say it's an unusual um a, uh, a lot of elements are not normal western elements but i love the the uh, template or the form of a of a western because i grew up in that and then the other thing I'm, I'm working on, I have 30 pages, uh, two chapters. I've kept voluminous diaries since I was in high school. I have, I have over 200 volumes of diaries and then I have a lot of other, you know, my efforts at writing my, I have a lot of chapter ones that a lot, right. a lot of chapter ones anyway, and, yeah. and some chapter one, two, threes. So, but anyway, so, but this, but, but this book is kind of, um, it's actually about, it's, it's a, it's a novel. It's, it's got, uh, different names for, for the people and the places, et cetera. But essentially my life, a traumatic event that happened to me when I was about 12. And then it, and then it, and then it continues forward from there and also goes back into my background. And, uh, and it's kind of a, it kind of goes deep into, you know, serious things about my, uh, um, you know, my life and, and things that have mattered to me and kind of how I got through, how I got through certain things and how I evolved, you know, to, to what mattered to me. So it's, uh, you know, you might, it might be a little bit of a Bildungsroman. Uh, oh yeah. You know. Where it's like a novel inside a novel. Well, no, well, Bildungsroman, I, I think that's, I think that's translated something like the building of the man yeah, where yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. where it's kind of like, You're there's a, there's a central figure and it's kind of like how this, this person became what he was. Right. Yeah. Something, something anyway. So, and it's, and these are, these are, three projects that I am very much kind of in love with. So I'm, uh, so that's, uh, and I have a brand new agent and I'm very happy about that. That's awesome. Well, I, I'm looking forward to seeing all the stuff that you do. 
Uh, how can people? Do you have a website? How can okay, people? Okay, I have a website you? which is uh, www.markallenstamity.com. You can also get there, markstamity.com or stamity.com. If you, if you, uh, and if you, if you Google me, I think it, the the website thing comes up like second or third or something in the in the list. So I was recently on um bullseye with jesse thorne i know jesse thorne he's a well he's he's wonderful and he's and he's a real appreciator of my work and um and that was uh that was really great and also i was on this uh in in wnyc in new york uh, all of it with allison stewart and i was also on wbai with leonard lopate uh and um Anyway, so you're getting around, man. I'm getting around, man. You're getting around. I can't wait to hear about all the stuff, especially that personal novel, about that traumatic event in your life when you were twelve. Um, I, 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 you know, it. This, I'll tell you more than anything right now. This, I just really want to get this book written. Right. I, I got these two chapters, and now what I'm trying to do is just as fast as I can write a rough draft of the rest of it like over and over and just get those you know the hardest mm-hmm. part is the words but i just i i really ache to get this book done uh, you know it's sometimes there's something that you just is from really deep in you and and i'd say this is i'm uh, so i yeah this is something i really want to get written and drawn and um it's just a matter of time. Nice. So I, I don't want to give it away till it's out, but thank you so much for coming. Oh, in. you're welcome. And we'll thank see you. you next thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. You're so welcome. And we'll <laughs> see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.